Chapter Two of Bunker Bean by Harry Leon Wilson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Chicago epoch began a year later. The true nature of its causes never lay quite clearly in the mind of Bean. There was first an entirely new Uncle Bunker, whom he had never seen, but whom he at once liked very much. He was a younger, more beautiful uncle, with a gay, light manner and expensive clothing. He wore a magnificent gold watch and chain, and jeweled rings flashed from his white fingers as he, in absent moments, daintily passed a small pocket-comb through the meshes of his lustrous brown side-whiskers. Little Bean knew that he did something on a board in Chicago, that he operated on the board of trade was the accustomed phrasing. He liked the word and tried to picture what operating might mean in relation to a board. The good people of Wellsville regarded this uncle with quite all the respect so flashing a figure deserved. Not so the two other Uncle Bunkers, from over Walnut Shadeway. Their first known agreement, voiced of this financier, was in saying something wise about a fool and his money. Later, and perhaps for the last time on earth, they agreed once more. That was when the news of his marriage came to them. For what was she? Nothing but his landlady's daughter. Snip of a girl that helped her mother run a cheap Chicago boarding house. Him that could have taken his pick if he was going to be a fool and tie himself up. You could bet that the pair had worked him. That mother and the girl landed him for his money. That was plain. Well, he'd made his bed. Bean was not slow to liken this uncle to his mother, who had also made her bed. He had at first a misty notion that the bride might a little resemble his father, a notion happily dispelled when he saw her, for the pair came to Wellsville. It was a sort of honeymoon combined vaguely with business. The bride was wonderfully pretty, Bean thought, dark and dainty and laughing, forever talking the most irresistible baby talk to her adoring mate. Her name for him was Booful. Bean at once fell deeply in love with this bride, a passion that was to endure beyond the life of most such affairs. She professed an infatuation equal to his own, and regretted that an immediate marriage, which he timidly advocated in the course of their first interview, was not practicable that she was frivolous, light-minded, and would never settle down to be a good worker, was a village verdict he scorned. Who would have her otherwise? Not he, nor the adoring Boofel, it is certain. He determined to go to live at her house, and strangely enough, for these sudden plans of his were most often discouraged, the thing seemed feasible. For one thing, his father was going to bring home a new mother, a lady he gathered who had not only settled down to be a good worker, but who, in espousing his father, would curiously not marry beneath her. Without being told so, he had absorbed from his first mother a conviction that this was possible to but few women. He felt a little glow of pride for his father in this affair. Another matter that seemed to bear on his going away was that this brilliant and human Uncle Bunker was a trustee. Not only a trustee, but his trustee, his very own, like his shell, or anything. This led to his discovery that he had money. His mother, it seemed, had left it to him, bunker money, that the two older uncles had sought and failed to divert from her on the occasion of her wedding, one below her station. Money, and the capable Uncle Bunker as trustee of that money. 
money one could buy things with. He was pleasantly conscious of being rather important under the glance of familiars. Even his father spoke formal words of counsel to him, as if a gulf was between them. His father now bereft of all bunker prestige, legal or social. And the new uncle was to educate him, though this was to be paid for out of that money of his very own. He was rudely shocked to learn that you had to pay money to go to school, loathing school as he did, to pay money for your own torture. Money that would buy things seemed unutterably silly. But despite this imbecility, the prospect retained its glamour. He would have suffered punishments even worse than school for the privilege of existing near that beautiful bride whom he was now calling at her especial request, Aunt Clara. She readily understood any affair that he chose to explain to her, understood about his shell, and said it was the most beautiful thing in all the world. She understood, too, and was deeply sympathetic about Skipper, the dog. Skipper was one of a series of puppies that Bean had appropriated from the public highway. Some had shamefully deserted him after a little time of pampering. Others, and these were the several that had howled untimely in the far night, had mysteriously disappeared. Bean had sometimes a hurt suspicion that his father knew more than he cared to tell about these vanishings. But Skipper had stayed and had not howled. Buffeted, wastrel of a thousand casual amours, soft-haired, confiding, ungainly, he was rich in understanding, if not in beauty. And yet he must be left. Even the discriminating and ever-just Aunt Clara felt that Skipper would not do well in a great city. Of course she was not clumsy enough to suggest that there were other dogs in the world, as did her less discerning husband, but she said that it would come out all right, and Bean trusted her. She knew, too, what would happen on his first night away, and came softly to his bed and solaced him as he lay crying for Skipper. Those first Chicago days were rich in flavor. The city was a marvel of many terrors, a place of weird sounds, strange shapes, and swift movements, among which, having been made timid by much adversity, you had need to be very, very careful if your hand was in no one's. The house itself was wonderful, a house of real brick and very lofty. If you started in the basement, you could go upstairs three distinct times in it before you reached the top. He had never imagined such a house for any but kings to live in. Within were many rooms, he hardly could count them all, and regal furnishings, gay with color, and permeating it all, a most appetizing odor of cooked food, eloquent tale of long-eaten banquets, able reminder of those to come. Out beside the front door was a rather dingy sign that said, Borders Wanted. His deduction after reading the sign was that the person who wanted the borders was Aunt Clara's mother. She was like Aunt Clara in that she was dark and small, but in nothing else. She did not wear pretty dresses, nor laugh, nor address baby talk to Boofle. She was very old and not nice to look at, Bean thought, and an uneasy woman, not knowing how to be quiet. Mostly she worked in the kitchen after a hasty morning tour of the house to do the rooms. Bean was much surprised to learn that her name, too, was Clara. She did not look at all like anyone whose name would be Clara. And presently there was to be a house even more magnificent than this, where they would all live together and where, so they jested, 
the old Clara wouldn't know what to do, because there would be nothing to do. The house would be ready just as soon as Buffle made his next turn, and that was so near in time that there was already a fascinating picture of the lines of the house, white lines on blue paper, over which Buffle and Aunt Clara spent many an evening in loving dispute. It seemed that you could change the house by merely changing those lines. Sometimes they put a curve into the main stairway, or doubled the area of stained-glass window in the music room. Sometimes it was a mere detail of alteration in the butler's pantry, or the coachman's room over the stable. The old Clara displayed no interest in these details. She seemed to be content to go on wanting boarders. This was not, as he saw it, an unlovely want. It surrounded her with gay companions at mealtime. They were like one big family, as one of the number would frequently observe. He was the one that most often set them all to laughing by his talk, like that of a German who speaks English imperfectly, which he didn't have to do at all. It was only make-believe, but very funny. After this joyous group and his Aunt Clara, who really came first, his preference in humans was for a lady who lived two doors away. If you rang her bell, she might be one of three persons. It depended on what you were looking for. She might be the manicure and chiropodist whose sign was displayed. She might be Madame Wanda, the world-renowned clairvoyant, sittings from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., advice on love, marriage, and business, sign also displayed, or she might be merely Mrs. Jackson, with a choice front room for a single gentleman, as declared by the third sign. In any case, she was a smiling, plump lady with a capable blue eye and abundant dark hair that was smooth and shiny. It was in company with his uncle that he first made her acquaintance. His uncle knew all that one need know about love and marriage, but it seemed that his knowledge of business could be extended. There were times when only the gifts of a world-renowned clairvoyant could enable one to say what May Wheat was going to do. The acquaintance, lightly enough begun, ripened soon to intimacy, and so were the eyes of Bean first opened to mysteries that would later affect his life so vitally. He was soon carrying wood and coal up the back stairs of Mrs. Jackson, in return for which the lady ministered to him in her professional capacities. At their first important session on a rainy Saturday of leisure, she trimmed and polished each of his ten fingernails, told his past, present, and future. He was going to cross water, and there was a dark gentleman he had need to beware of, and suggested that his feet might need attention. He squirmingly demurred at this last operation, and successfully resisted it. But the bonds of their friendship were sealed over a light collation which she served. She was a vegetarian, she told him. You couldn't get on to a high spiritual plane if you ate the corpses of murdered animals. But her food seemed sufficing, and she drank beer, which he brought her in a neat pitcher from the cheerful store on the corner where they sold such things. Beer, she explained to him was a strictly vegetable product. Though not the thing for growing boys, the young must discriminate even among vegetables. They liked each other well, and in a little time he had absorbed the simple tale of her activities. When you rented rooms, people sometimes left without paying you. So had gone Professor de Lavigne, the chiropodist. So had vanished the original Madame Wanda. 
they had left their signs and nothing else the rest was simple after you had been seeing how they did it a little practice with a nail file a little observation of parties that came in with crape on to whom you said standing right there i see someone near and dear to you that has lately passed on to the spirit land or male parties that looked all fussed up and worried to whom you said that the deal was coming out all right only they were always to act on their first impulse and look out for a man with kind brownish hair who carried a gold watch and sometimes wore gloves she said it was strange how she could hit it sometimes especially where there were initials in the hats they left outside in the hall or a name inside the overcoat pocket it was wonderful what she had been able to tell parties for a dollar bean cared little for these details but he was excited by the theory back of them a world from which the unseen spirits of the dead will counsel and guide us in our daily affairs if we will listen it was a new terror added to a world of terrors they were all about you striving with futile hands to touch you whispering words of cheer or warning to your deaf ears mrs jackson herself believed it implicitly and went each week to consult one or another of the more advanced mediums the last one had seen the spirit of her aunt mary a deceased person so remote in time that she had been clean forgotten but it was a valuable pointer when you come to think about it at least seven parties out of ten if they were any way along in years had a dead aunt mary and it was best to go to the good ones mrs jackson admitted that you paid more but you got more uncle bunker became of this opinion very soon what mrs jackson disclosed to him about may wheat had seemed to be hardly worth the dollar she asked he began going to the good ones and being gathered that even in their superior gifts left something to be desired the brilliant uncle began to accustom his home circle to frowns being in the older clara she was beginning to complain about not sleeping and a pain in her side were sensible of this change but the younger clara only pouted when she noticed it at all prettily accusing her splendid consort of not caring for her as he had once professed to she spent more time over her hair and shopped extensively for feminine trappings then one day his uncle came home a slinking wreck of beauty and told aunt clara that all was lost save honor bean heard the interesting announcement and gathered after a question from his aunt that his own patrimony had been a part of that all which was lost save honor he heard his uncle add tearfully that one shot would end it now he was frightened by this but his aunt clara seemed not to be he heard her say there there did a nasty old martyr do a dance toms and later she was seen to take him up tea and toast and chicken the years seemed to march more swiftly then school and growing and little changes in the house booful never fired the shot that would have ended all the older clara inconsequently died and the frivolous clara took her place in the kitchen she had not corrected her light manner but slowly she changed with the years until she was almost as faded as the old clara had been more ambitious however and working to better purpose they went to a new and finer house that would hold more boarders and the sign which was lettered in gold said boarders taken a far more dignified sign than the old with its frank appeal of boarders wanted that new sign intimated a noble condescension aunt clara had not only settled down to be a worker 
but she had proved to be a manager. Buffle actually performed little services about the house, staying in the kitchen at mealtime to carve and help serve the food. Aunt Clara had been unexpected, adamant, in the matter of his taking a fine revenge on the market that had gone against him. She refused to provide the very modest sum he pleaded for to this end, and as the two old Uncle Bunkers were equally obdurate, they said they had known when he married that flutter-budget just how it would end. His leisure was never seriously menaced. Aunt Clara was especially firm about the money, because of the considerable life insurance premium she soon began to pay. It was her whim that little Bean had not been of competent years to lose all save honor, and she had discovered a life insurance company whose officers were mad enough to compute Buffle's loss to the world in dollars and cents. He was, in fact, considered an excellent risk. He did not fade after the manner of the busy Aunt Clara, that gay little wretch whose girlish graces lingered on incongruously, like jests upon a tombstone. Bean grew to college years. Aunt Clara had been insistent about the college. It was to be the best business college in Chicago. Bean matriculated without formality and studied stenography and typewriting. Aunt Clara had been afraid that he might get in with a fast college set and learn to drink and smoke and gamble. It may be admitted that he wished to do just these things, but he had observed the effects of drink. His one experience with tobacco had remained all too vivid, and gambling required more capital than the car fare he was usually provided with. Besides, you came to a bad end if you gambled. It led to other things. Nor would he on the public street join with any number of his class in the college yell. He was afraid a policeman would arrest him. Even in the more mature years of a comparatively blameless life, he remained afraid of policemen, and never passed one without a tremor, all of which conduced to his efficiency as a student. When others fled to their questionable pleasures, he was as likely as not to remain in his chair before a typewriter, pounding out again and again, the swift brown fox jumps over the lazy dog a dramatic enough situation ingeniously worded to utilize nearly all the letters of our alphabet. At last he was pronounced competent, received a diploma, which Aunt Clara framed handsomely, and hung in her own room beside the pastel portrait of Buffle in his opulent prime, and took up a man's work. The veil that hangs between mortal eyes and the infinite had many times been pierced for him by the able Mrs. Jackson, he was now to enter another and more significant stage of his spiritual development. His first employer was a noble-looking old man, white-bearded and vast of brow, who came to be a boarder at Aunt Clara's. He was a believer in the cult of theosophy, and specialized on reincarnation. Neither word was luminous to Bean, but he learned that the old gentleman was writing a book and would need an amanuensis. They agreed upon terms, and the work began. The book was a romance, entitled Glimpses Through the Veil of Time, and it was to tell of a soul's adventures through a prolonged series of reincarnations. So much being grasped, the terminology of the author was more difficult when you have chiefly learned to write, Your favor of the eleventh inst came duly to hand, and in reply we beg to state, it is confusing to be switched 
to such words as anthropogenesis and to chapter headings like substituting variable quantities for fixed extraordinary theoretic possibilities even when the author meant to be most lucid bean found him not too easy in order to simplify the theory of the karmic cycle dictated the white-bearded one for his introduction let us think of the subplanes of the astral plane as horizontal divisions and of the types of matter belonging to the seven great planetary logoi as perpendicular divisions crossing these others at right angles what bean made of this in transcribing his notes need not be told what is solely important is that as the tale progressed he became enthralled by the doctrine of reincarnation it was of minor consequence that he became expert in shorthand had he lived before would he live again there must be a way to know elclitus began an early chapter of the tale was born this time in twenty one nine seventy six b c in a male body as the son of a king in what is now the telugu country not far from masulapatam he was proficient in riding shooting swimming and the sports of his race when he came of age he married surya the daughter of a neighboring rajah and they were very happy together in their religious studies had he bunker bean perhaps espoused the daughter of a rajah and been happy in religious studies with her had he perchance been even the rajah himself why not the romance was never finished a worried son of the old gentleman appeared one day alleged that he had run off from a good home where he was kindly treated and by mild force carried him back but he had performed his allotted part in bean's life a few books had been left and these were read death was a recurring incident in an endless life wise men he saw had found this an answer to all problems founders of religions and philosophies buddha pythagoras plato the christ wise moderns had accepted it max muller and hume and goethe fichte schelling lessing bean could not appraise these authorities but the names somehow sounded convincing and the men had seemed to think that reincarnation was the only doctrine of immortality a philosopher could consider it remained then to explore the karmic past of bunker bean not in any mood of lightness a verse quoted by the old man had given him pause who toiled a slave may come anew a prince for gentle worthiness and merit won who ruled a king may wander earth in rags for things done and undone what might he have been for ruling once as a king a bad king was he now merely bunker bean not precisely roaming the earth in rags but sidling timidly through its terrors disbelieving in himself afraid of policemen afraid of life so he confronted and considered the thing fascinated by its vistas as once he had been by the shell if it were true that we cast away our bodies and ever reclothe ourselves with new why should not the right member of mrs jackson's profession one day unfold to him his beginningless past End of chapter two